Today I welcome Nick Folland, Headmaster at Sherbourne Prep School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the impact COVID has had on primary education, adapting to online learning in the early years, balancing screen time, plus the impact lockdown has had on the health and well-being of our kids. You mentioned professional sport. You started your career playing professional cricket for Somerset. Um, what lessons did you learn in sport that you have brought into your teaching career? Yeah, look, I, I, get, I get asked this a reasonable amount. Uh, and um, it, it's an interesting one because I think sport has not taught me everything, but it's taught me huge amounts. I, I actually had an interesting cricketing career because in I was an amateur, really. And I played sort of at the highest levels in amateur cricket and was probably better known as an amateur cricketer. And then quite late, went into professional cricket and played for Somerset, which was a wonderful experience and a great thing to do. And first thing it taught me is the differences between amateur and professional sport, uh, which are profound. Um, when, you, when you cross the white line and you're getting paid for it, your whole experience is very different. Um, uh, but sport, I mean, it's taught me huge amounts, which I've brought into, I think, teaching. I mean, I happen to be captain quite a lot in my cricketing career. So, I, you know, I've, I've sort of always been in leadership roles. And obviously it's different on a cricket field, but there are similarities. And I think that that role people have to play is really important. I believe in carrot and not stick. I believe in positivity. Uh, I believe most people need an arm around them and encouragement. Uh, I believe uh, most people, when asked, can step up and do a really fine job. Um, but they need to be empowered to do that. They need to be believed in to do that. Uh, you can't throw someone a ball. When, when you throw someone a ball on a cricket field or ask them to go into bat, you can't bat for them and you can't bowl for them. It's up to them. They're actually on their own, uh, but they, you hope they're supported within a team context. So a teacher or anyone in management or anyone in school you need them as a head to be empowered and to step up and do their jobs. There's nothing more important for a head but to have a really good team around him. Um, we're as good as our staff. It's, you know, that, that's what a school is, in my view. We're as good as the teachers and the, the people who manage and help run the school and all the support staff. And um, it's exactly the same in a, a sporting environment. Yeah. Um, but you, you learn to deal with the pressures, don't you? And, and walking out in front of audiences. I think you're always on show. You're always watched. And you are in, in the prep school world. You are as a head. You know, I go into the local supermarket. I'm watched. I have this title of head. I don't particularly like that at times because I'm just knit. But, you know, you play, you play your role and, and that's your profession and that's your job. Um, and you have to deal with those pressures and manage people accordingly. And in sport, you've got to manage people. And um, I've sort of done that all my life, really, either in sport or in education. Yeah, and, so, and so obviously from, a, from, from the sporting um, sort of background, does that mean you instill a natural sense of competitiveness into your pupils, consciously or sub? or subconsciously um, or is competitiveness not really the, um, the the kind of trait or the angle that you're looking for well, I consider myself an educationalist Simon you know so actually it's not about the winning I mean you 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 compete you compete hard you try to be the best you can be and I love it when our kids go out there and they win but actually um, it's more how they play and what they learn through playing and the joy they get out of playing and being part of a team and enjoying that experience. So I, I'd like to think I'm extremely balanced. It, it amuses me how 
people can get so worked up actually with nine, 10 year olds running around on rugby hockey fields. The result is actually fairly irrelevant at that age, frankly. Um, they need to learn the values of sport and compete as hard as they can, don't they? So I wouldn't say it's all about competition. I think um, sport is just, and I also say as a games player, you can be labeled that that becomes the most important thing. Well, it's not. I've always sought more joy in education out of the drama, the art, the music, to be honest, the academics, actually, you know, I, if, they, if someone is, 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 gains a scholarship or is thriving academically and working their socks off, you know, that, that, that's a wonderful thing to watch. And um, I love it, just the same as in sport, performing on a stage, performing in a musical concert brings the same pressures, the same, you know, commitment necessary. And um, it's great to watch all of that. And I think you can get labelled as a games player. And I, I'm keen when I ran a senior boarding house at um, previous school Blundells, you know, I, it wasn't going to be the sporty house. If anything, we, we tried hard in the music and the drama room just as much. And um, I think that's quite important. Yeah, it is. And it, I, I, I often find that as well in terms of labels. I mean, I, I played international hockey. I was very much everything about my, my day to day was sport, 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 win, you know, you know, being, being competitive in that, in that area. And actually we're, we're, as I was a parent going into my daughter's prep school, I remember going to the first, I think the, the first sports day. I mean, she must have only been five, um, but feeling hugely disappointed and frustrated that how could, how could that be my daughter when I'm so competitive? And I really learned a big lesson as a parent, a really big lesson about actually, I just looked at her face and the enjoyment she was having and your kids cannot be you. And you cannot also live out your, your failed ambitions through your children. Um, so I think parents, I understand being on the side of a pitch. Um, and, you know, I've got four kids and each of them is completely different. And, you know, I would say none of them have probably had that sporting side that I had, but all incredibly brilliant at their own different things that I've had to kind of grow and become better at as a parent. It's a tough job, parenting. I've got two myself, girl, boy, and um, it is a tough job and uh, it's very difficult to get it. Well, we don't all get it uh, right all the time, do we? And um, you're right, siblings are often very different and they often do not follow in their parents' footsteps, nor do they. And our job is to put them on their own two feet, isn't it? And give them confidence to go and be themselves and carve out their own you know, passage in life. Yeah. I mean, children spend too much time on screens. Um, I think that's, that, that, that's agreed. And, uh, you know, is there enough sport timetabled in primary education? And are we really doing enough to maybe tackle obesity and the, the, the health crisis that is surely coming? Look, I think it's improved out there in the state sector. And I, I, I was at school in the 70s and 80s, and, and I, was, I went to a huge state uh, comprehensive school, one of the biggest in Europe. And we were lucky because then we had game staff who wanted to be there after school and run sessions and, and let us play. Um, and then it seemed to change, I think, uh, in the 70s. There were sort of work to rule and, and schools tend to shut a bit earlier and that sort of side of things with the P in sports seemed to drop off, which was a great shame. Um, but I think it's come back a little bit more and people are very conscious that this is an important aspect of of children's growing up. Society's changed. I mean, I, I don't know about you, son, but all I did in the evenings, my parents would just, I'd have tea and they'd say, we'll see you at nine o'clock. And off I went to my friend's houses and kicked around things in the fields and, and played, came in exhausted at nine o'clock, 
got up the next day and did exactly went to school and then did exactly yeah. the same the next night. And it doesn't happen like that anymore. Screens and technology has changed a lot. In some ways it frustrates me because I, you know, our school has this sort of ethos, which is climb trees and be out there and be active, I think is so important. And the parents buy into that, I think. Um, and prep school education, it's a huge part of it. It's that breadth, that experience, longer days, competitive sport is a part of uh, prep school life. Not everyone buys into that. Not everyone enjoys it. But even those who aren't the, the best games players, I still think can gain a lot from the experience. Yeah, and, and that's the enrichment that you get um, in obviously a fee-paying fee -paying prep school. Um, as opposed to, you know, um, education, pri primary years anyway. And it is difficult. I do remember those days. I had three brothers, so we were absolutely, we were kicked out after tea, even before tea, outside. That was it. There was no choice. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. go, go and kick each other, go and kick a ball, throw a ball, climb a tree, get up to no good. But yeah, there, there was not this other, I say this, this, this other pull, um, which is the, the, the technology and the screens. And you know, children have access to technology and screens from this from a very early age. I mean, parents now, you know, they talk about, you know, in utero, you know, everything's scanned and they are chronicled from the moment that they are probably trying to have a child. And that child now is absolutely going to be in front of screens, photographed and part of their kind of almost their, their intrinsic day to day life. Um, so they have it from a very early age and many mental health and child safety experts say it is too much and with little parental control and understanding that goes with it. How do we prevent this becoming an epidemic we cannot fix or is it too late well, already? It's almost, it's almost, we've almost, and the last year has been extraordinary. Um, how, what our school has managed to, how we've managed to advance things and teach online. We're really dual teaching to those in class and those at home now live throughout an entire day with children on screens from 8.30 in the morning till five at night. It is a long day and it's grueling and it's tough for them. Um, I think we're putting on a fine job, but um, my goodness, it's different. And I didn't envisage it being like anything like this a year ago, but just generally, of course it's changed everything. There's a lot of positivity in it. It is changing education for the better as well. Social media is hugely dangerous. Uh, but you know is a double-edged sword and can be and can be extremely positive as well children communicate in such different ways I believe they're too conscious of it we work tirelessly to try and get them off screens as much as possible uh, I think parents too early offer them mobile phone devices etc um, there are many other creative lovely things they can be doing and children don't want to be bored anymore they can't get bored anymore they have to be entertained constantly and there's something uh, rather good in being bored and having to make up things uh, you know your own games your own play I think that's crucial um, so yes it's massively changed we just got to keep banging the drum and not look like old fuddy duzzies work with the technology you know make it work for us but but um, educate and advise children that there's a lot more out there and get them into their music and their drama and their creativity and, and the outside world you know and, and keep showing the joy of you know, everything else that's around them not just a screen playing electronic games gaming is an issue with our young people it's addictive um, and it's very easy for them to become addictive, I think. And um, it is dangerous. It is yeah. dangerous. So parents need educating. We all need a balance. There should be set times um, and there are many other pleasurable things to do. 
Yeah, and it is, it is a double-edged sword. You know, they, they, they're going to need technology in their, in, in their entire lives. Um, you know, and, you know, if you, my, my teenagers going out um, and leaving school, you know, they need them in their job. So, again, how do we teach responsible usage? How do we teach the children the power of technology? Um, your point about boredom, I completely get and I take, and I think we need to do more to teach kids to be bored because they, it's very, very easy for them to go, you know, when, when my son comes and goes, is not my youngest is nine and he goes i'm, I'm bored it, it, it what that means is that um none of his friends are online that he's been chatting to um the the, the battery's probably dead on some of the devices um you, you know he can't find the tv remote and you know his brothers and his sisters are, are ignoring him and it's kind of i'm bored is this a natural call for help to go find something else to do and so we kick him out outside you know <laughs> we don't kick him out yeah i also think parents are seem busier um you know in a, in a high fee paying school often dual you know dual income earners working tirelessly to help pay the fees etc uh, they are busy it's it's quite easy if your child is entertained on the screen or is able to go to their bedroom and and occupy themselves isn't it and um but that can be dangerous as well and there's just got to be a balance in all our lives and um we're all addictive creatures i believe we all you know we all can be consumed by things and there is a danger in that and um children need to have that sense of balance yeah um, it is it's extraordinarily difficult and you mentioned about parents here and you know there, there is a role and responsibility obviously for schools to to help the parents because there is that partnership piece that you know once they get go home you know parents do there's an apathy to it all you know technology becomes parenting by proxy because it's easy um you know we, we don't want to deal with the fights so you just kind of put up with it and the kids know that if they fight it they'll get it because parents give in and go i've got too much else going on um the number one channel for primary age school children is YouTube. You know, that, that is their platform. They, they go on there, they, they, there's so much content. It's, it's, it's the biggest channel on the planet. Do you think it is the tech giant's responsibility or government or parents to enforce the appropriate streaming and access to healthy content? All, all I think so. All what you've said there, everyone has got to be involved in that. And um, we have a duty as schools also to engage with our parents and educate and discuss these things with our parents. I mean, I think in certain countries of the world, there are parenting classes. We, we don't get any education in how to be a parent. And you're absolutely right in what you say. It's interesting how children will react differently to a member of staff than they will their mum or dad. And it's always the same with me. I'm a headmaster in school. The children are normally, I promise you, normally very well behaved in front of me. And if I have to have a word here and there, hopefully they normally do listen. But they will behave differently. If that was my own children, they wouldn't treat me like that. And, and that's the way it is. Uh, but we have, to in, we have to work hard with our parents to, uh, to try and strive for that balance. And look, we're, we're in the South. I'm, we're, I'm lucky here in Sherburn. We're beautiful Southwest. I think that the atmosphere in schools around the Southwest, when you get out of the Southeast bubble as well, is very, very different. Um, I think a lot of people have actively moved this way because they want a sense of balance. They want their children to be outside. They don't want pressure, pressure, pressure put on their children. They want them to experience the breadth and the opportunity and have a childhood. Um, but there's still that battle with technology, absolutely. And um, 
yeah, we've got children who become obsessed with it and it's very hard to pull them away from it. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. What is your experience of the quality of education and how parents are dealing with it? Well, I want to praise our uh, staff and parents, to be honest, because they've rallied hugely, all of them, and the children have, have dealt with it very, very well. We've learned a lot through the process. I said earlier that if I could imagine where we are now to where we were 12 months ago with use of technology and how we're teaching, um, it's a completely different world. And we've come on so much and done so much. And I think what we're offering is actually very good, but it is not the same and it cannot be the same. The children are, children are on screen too much. We're basically on a live learning platform throughout the whole day. The tasks need to be very different for the younger ages to the older ages. I think, you know, from year five, six, seven, eight, they tend to be able to deal with it uh, very well. But when you start getting into pre-prep age, online learning is a, a major challenge so different tasks need to be set uh, the teachers have upskilled unbelievably they've learned a lot as we've gone and um, the parents have had to support hugely I think the staff feel they're being watched a lot more as well there's a pressure in that you know the the, the, the uh, situation financially for independent schools and high fee paying parents is another challenge in all this how long will this go on how long are they going to accept this sort of education and at what price um, that's a, a dilemma for all independent schools and there's been there will be big shifts because of this i think in the independent sector um, but when one looks at it in terms of a uh, where we sit in uh, as a sort of in, nationally I think we've done extraordinarily well and I think the parents are getting and the children are getting as good a deal as they can get but you've got to be realistic we want them back in school as quickly as possible the social aspect is where is the key it's not just the academics they, they were coping pretty well on that front I think um, the children are still working jolly hard but it's the social dynamic and then being with their friends and just getting on to all that extracurricular, co-curricular provision, that is what's being missed uh, as much as the actual academic lessons. They can function reasonably well. Yeah, yeah, it's a pressure part. I mean, and the primary education in the early years, um, yeah, I mean, it's no one asked for this, right? And so schools have had to adapt, and it's taught us to, to you know, about resilience, you know, that, that human determination and grit. Um, it's been enormously difficult. Um, do you think that the, that the gulf between private and state has got too big now? I don't, I don't want to comment too much. I don't know. So I don't really know yeah. what's going out there in the part. I think some have done it brilliantly and others perhaps haven't. But I don't, I don't know. We still you know, can do more, I, I expect, and, and get even better. We're learning month by month. Um, but... I think there probably is a gap, if I'm being honest. Um, uh, and our staff, you know, we recognise we're, we're having to protect our own business and our own school. And, you know, we have to provide real quality. Um, if we don't, people are going to drop off very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a problem. Yeah. And, and do, do you see, I've, I've, I've read quite a lot and people are, are sort of trying to 
you know, look at education as a whole and going, okay, where, where are this, where are these kids? You know, and this has gone on and on and on. Do you think that these children who have been caught in this time of remote learning will have to repeat a year as we re and we have to reset education and go, look, it was a year we've not moved where we needed to be um, for us to be on this treadmill of, of where curriculum drives us. Do we, do we reset and... I'd be more worried about the social aspects of children and their interactions and their personal development rather than their academic development. I think for the most part, schools will keep in tune with that and there will be fairly rapid catch up and an intensity from schools to cover the ground and get children back up to speed. Obviously, this can't just keep going on and on and on. They will lose out significantly. It's gone on long enough already. But I worry more for the school. And I think this is what this, these lockdowns have shown us, that schools, it's not just the lessons, is it? It's the, it's the whole sense of community and the parents also, the pick up with parents and the friendships and the, the coming in to watch this and support that and the children's interactions in the playground and around the corridors. That's what they miss about the school. We actually opened in the summer at the end of the first lockdown for two weeks. We managed to get all the children in for the mornings and they literally ran into school. They bounded into school. They could not wait to get back to see their friends. And we just rather let them go for a few days, to be honest. We just wanted them to have a sense of fun and, and be, be with each other again. Yeah, I, and I agree. And I think, I think parents will be running into school as well. Um, <laughs> as, as soon as you open that gate. Yeah, um, look, our parents have been amazingly supportive and I think very appreciative of what how, how the staff are working. Um, but they're missing out as well. You know, they, in a fee-paying prep school, they, they, they want to feel part of that community and they want to support the community. And our parents are incredibly supportive. Um, and they're missing out on that. They drop them off in the cars. We say hello and off they drive. We don't see them till five o'clock. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on prep school education as a whole, because you mentioned fee paying. Obviously, fee paying is, is you know, it, it's, it's a business. You know, if, without the fees coming in, you cannot maintain and sustain a, a good independent school. Can the prep education survive if no kids are in school? If this carries on, we're going to have, you know, parents aren't going to carry on and want to keep paying for a, a remote model because that's not what you buy into prep yeah. education for. Simon, some, some will survive, lots won't. Um, it depends how long this goes on. Uh, as you rightly say, you know, it's a lot of money and, you know, affordability is the key issue, I think, in the independent sector as a whole. Um, there are pockets of huge wealth, you know, and some schools will always be absolutely fine. And they're very well endowed and, you know, they've got huge sums of money behind them. Most prep schools are not in that ballpark at all. They survive on small margins if they're lucky enough to make a margin. Uh, it is tight. What you're paying for is smaller class sizes, breadth, opportunity and staffing is your biggest cost. Um, and, you know, it, as I say, little margins are small. And so um, it only needs a drop off of pupil numbers to a certain extent. And suddenly the school finds itself in difficulty. Um, people don't appreciate that. They are, they are actually forking out huge sums of money. Um, expectations have increased as well. They want more and more, it seems. Um, but, yeah, it costs. And if it goes on, schools will find themselves in trouble and the sector will change because of this. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think you know it'll be the, it'll be the pre prep that is the, the the first to suffer, and obviously schools that offer the prep side that go up to um, thirteen, you know, again probably in a stronger position because they they've got more kids who are you know capable of doing more independent learning. I want to talk to you about yeah, that. Yeah, sorry, Simon. I think people delay in the system a little bit. Uh, the, the trend is, you know, perhaps they identify GCSE A level as being, you know, where they want to spend their money. I, I, I'm biased, obviously, being a prep school head, but I think if, uh, if a child is, um, you know, has a, a good foundation and a solid footing by 11, 13, you know, they're going to be fine. And um, I would urge parents to invest at the earlier ages. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's certainly been our view, and that, that was our decision um, with, with my wife and I. Um, you lead a classic independent prep school that educates until the age of 13. What's the difference when schools have children through to the age of 13 rather than schools that end after year six at the age of 11? Well, I've done both, Simon, because it bundles. I was in the senior school at bundles initially and then moved into the prep school, which was a prep school to 11 and really fed the, the senior school. 90 odd percent went through to the senior school. So I've been in charge of a prep school to 11 and also in charge of two prep schools to 13. And I actively wanted to go to a prep school to 13. I'm senior trained. If in truth, I miss the older children, but I've really loved this age group now. I've really uh, learnt and enjoy this age group. They're just open mouthed and want to learn and you can have such fun with them. Um, but the, the differences to 13 are quite profound, actually. Um, one, the, eight, the sevens and eights, the year group seven, they add so much more to your community on the stage, in art, academically that they're a presence around school, they lead their school and they're good role models uh, for the younger children. I think also a prep school to 13 attracts more male staff and different staff, more senior trained staff as well. And you start to become more specialist as you go through the year groups. So you do get your Latin and maths teachers and your games teachers and your musicians, but you, we're a 50-50 male, female staff, which you wouldn't really see in the state sector as well, um, so that is a that is a, a difference, um, and we our focus are those not our focus as all the children of course, but you know that we are trying to prepare them as a preparatory school for life beyond our school and life in senior school, and they're really ready to leave at thirteen, but they leave us having had that sort of leadership experience in the latter years. I, I think is more grown up and um, more confident young people ready to leave but also also ready to start and get going in a new environment and not right at the bottom of the pile like they might be in a school to 11 with 18 year olds surrounding them yeah so i think that's uh, it's different and um i think it's great fun and, you, and the development in a child from year six to year eight they obviously changed massively year and year but it it's unrecognizable the child that leaves in year eight to a child in year six it's quite remarkable with all the physical development and everything else that starts coming in the differences in these young people yeah no, and, and i've seen that in, in in my children you know you know when they leave at year six you know that that first term of year seven it's extraordinary to think that that, that they were you know they, they were really small and very young at you know at, in the year six leaving the top of their school and then suddenly they're thrown into the, the bigger schools and but they really do grow up and you feel wow that that seemed like an eternity ago and and, you know, that, that's such an important time for a child's development between the age of 11 and 13. 
you know, extraordinary when it comes to their social, emotional well-being, their sense Absolutely. of belonging. And you're, you're developing, you know, and they're starting to want that independence. It's, it's also, Simon, when those peer group pressures and social media things start developing more strongly. And, you know, we, we in a, quite a small, um, you know, watchful environment can be on it and talk to parents about it and talk about their development and, you know, and whether if they're sitting scholarships and they're still doing their gaming, well, you know, let's have a chat with the parents and do, do and get the balance right. And so you tend to be on it. And I think if they hit senior schools at year seven, and I just think it's the right model actually yeah. to move to a senior school at 13 rather than 11, they can be a little lost, I think, and very young amongst older, older pupils. Yeah. So maybe, so, so maybe actually the future of education is that we, we, we need to change state education too um, and get them finishing at 13 and so you know the, the the senior schools are really it is right now it's a conveyor belt to GCSEs and there's lots of talk about the, the, their usefulness right now um, and you know to, about exam reform um, but I, I, I think it's a great it's a great model um, and what you're doing at Sherbourne, Sherbourne Prep is certainly something for other prep schools and uh, and schools to look at. You've recently announced a strategic partnership with Sherbourne School um, what does that mean for both schools? Well, it goes back to our earlier conversation, Simon, really, in that, um, look, I think it'll be good for the senior school, for Sherburn School, and it'll be very good for us. As we said, our, our frustration is that we're, we're a, a sound financial school, um, but um, we cannot drive at the sort of margins which are going to allow us to really invest strongly in, in the infrastructure of the school, the facilities and also you know ultimately the real quality staffing as we go forwards and the amount of staff etc and whether we can do this or do that um, and so to be part of a bigger setup to be part of a, a school which you know 600 full borders fine reputation a national international brand uh, right on our doorstep and we use their facilities and we have close links anyway it's a bit of a no-brainer, really, when you look at what's happened, particularly over the last year, but it was going to happen anyway. And, and I think we'll see more of this in the independent sector. We'll be part of a bigger ship and a bigger opera operation with the resources to be able to drive the school forwards. I don't think it means massive change for our school. I think Sherburn Prep should be Sherburn Prep and the head should run Sherburn Prep and it will feed different schools. Um, but we're naturally aligned to Sherburn School, which is literally 100 yards the other side of the road. Um, and so it makes sense for both. I'm sure there'll be a feed through into the uh, into Sherburn School. They've got magnificent plans going forwards um, about the development of their school. And the prep school will now be a part of that and will be a better and stronger resource, I think, because of it. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it seems like a really obvious partnership you know and it's because you've, you've both been established for a long time um so to be able to actually formalize that and actually see the opportunity benefits that are going to come from that partnership um it's going to be great to watch and i do think that it will be a model that you know particularly in these times that other schools are going to start looking at this model as a way forward um to to, to better what they're doing from a resourcing teaching learning and ultimately education yeah i mean already our staff i think our staff are genuinely excited about it and um 
you know, there may well be the opportunity to teach across years nine and 10 and some teachers at the senior teaching across our years seven and eight, you know, we can dip into a bit of their maths expertise or this or that and, and link the schools. That will take some time, will take some working out, but um, it's exciting to think about. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.